When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. My next guest is somebody that I have been wanting to interview since I started this podcast about three and a half years ago. And it's finally happening. This guy's got a massive footprint in the veteran space. He's a former Army Ranger, a YouTuber now with millions of subscribers and who knows how many how many views. But um, look, this guy's putting out really good word. He cares a lot about the country. I even got him to dive into his background, which was like pulling teeth. You know what I'm talking about. But um, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, it is my honor to present to you Mr. John Lovell to The Sean Ryan Show. Please like and subscribe. Comment to the YouTube channel. Head over to Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. And those of you that have been watching for a while, you know there is a ton of raw, cut-up reels for you to download for free. Download those, put them on your channel, monetize them, make money. Patreon, we love you. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. John Lovell to The Sean Ryan Show. Love you all. Cheers. John Lovell, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me, man. Good to be here. This has been a very long time coming. You know, we were going to collab back in the back several years ago when I was doing tactics and you were a lot heavier into tactics, I believe. And and uh, I don't know why that fell off, but you're here now and I have been really excited to finally meet you in person, man. I love the content you pump out. I love the excuse me for saying this, but I love the kind of turn that you made at the right point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about some of the issues in the country and, and getting loud about things. I don't think there's enough people doing that these days, and and you're one of the few. Well, it seems like we made the same turn around the same time. We talked about that last night at dinner, too, and it's like I was happy doing my kind of gun-tastic, gun-fu thing in the world of tactics, and uh, but, man, the world's just, I mean, really uh, careening towards some disastrous things, and I just— felt this inner compulsion of like, I can't just, you know, make mine and and do my merry thing when uh, so many crises are happening around me. I've like, I got a platform to steward and I want to do it well and I want to be a a change agent for good. And so I just, 
I just couldn't stop by and watch every value I had and everything I loved uh, be, yeah, destroyed. And so we made that change seemingly to me at, at like the same time, right? Yes, we did. Almost the exact same time. You mm -hmm. know, I, I feel like it is a responsibility mm -hmm. that if you have a platform that's big enough to actually make an impact and hopefully lift the veil on some people that it, 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 it's, it's your responsibility to do that. And um, I take it extremely seriously. I know you do too. And I've, I've watched a lot of a lot of your stuff where you're interviewing different people. I saw one where you were at a golf course. This was several years ago. I believe it was a golf course. I think you were, you were interviewing congressmen or it, mm. it, it was, it's just good stuff, you know, and it's things that people need to hear and it's stuff that you don't hear on the mainstream, you know, yeah. and um, it's a, it's just another perspective that is an important one. So yeah. I, it's good to have you here, John. We got a lot to talk about. Let's do it, man. But um, let me give you a quick introduction here. So John Lovell, Christian, missionary, uh, Army Ranger from 2nd Battalion, five combat tours in four in Afghanistan, one in Iraq, husband, married for 17 years. We're in our 17th, yeah. Father of two boys, author of the Warrior Poets Society, firearms trainer, speaker, founder of the War Warrior Poets Society, and... YouTuber. Yeah. And I'm pretty into dad jokes. That's the big bio bullet point for me. Dad joke connoisseur. You know, really love dad jokes. You got one off the top of your head? It's your favorite? Uh, favorite, man. Why well, I just did the lead and now I can't, I can't stall out. I put out. you on the spot. Do you know uh, why you don't see elephants hiding in trees? No. It's because they're so good at it. <laughs> so nice. It's the dumber it is, the more I enjoy it. Nice. So nice. But, um, you know, <clears throat> I am really excited to dig into your backstory. I wasn't messing around. We just did a little Instagram story, but I was saying that, that you are one of the number one, you are one of the top requested interviews that we get. A lot of people want to know your backstory. And I know it's like pulling teeth trying to get it out of you, but I will do it. But I just want to tell you, man, I'm, I'm really excited about this. And, uh, and then on the back end, I'd love to discuss some current events. Yeah, love to. But, um, <clears throat> but just getting into it, a little warm up here. I like talking to folks of similar to yourself about school shootings and the Second Amendment and how do we... How do we fix this problem? We've, you know, the politicians just bat the Second Amendment back and forth time and time again. Nothing really happens. Um, nobody's really pumping money into the school safety. And and what do you think the solution here is? You know, we see red flag laws on the left. We see the right doesn't want to do, does, doesn't want to bend on that. And, and, you know, how do we fix this? I think the moment we start protecting our kids the same way that we protect our Congress people and our politicians, all the school shootings are just going to disappear immediately. 
Even the lefty anti-gun politicians are protected by people with guns, which is extremely hypocritical. We should pause on that. But they're protected by people with guns, uh, and yet our kids are protected with signs? That's it, really? This isn't a serious solution, and they know it. And so I think uh, the moment you take it uh, seriously of like, no, let's protect our kids with with people with guns, just like our politicians are. And the moment you do that, it's just going to disappear. The only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. That's it. That's the way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. How exactly would you do it? I mean, the politicians aren't going to do it. They're not going to release the funding. Some things that I've noticed are there are actually some grants available. Mm. And so one thing that I think that would help is there's all these companies popping up, and some of them actually have pretty cool products. You know, I know there's one company, I think it's Fox 2 Sierra. They have the bulletproof whiteboard that you can lock it down in front of a door. Um, there's the new, actually, it's not new. We were using this um, a long time ago in, in various combat zones, the film that you put over the windows. Yeah. You know, but there are actually grants for these things. And I think if the companies that are selling these things actually educated themselves on the grants, and had a team to go into these schools and private schools and daycares and preschools and anything where there's kids and not only educated the 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 business entity on the actual product that they're selling but also educated them on the grants this would be a lot we would see a lot more school security coming into play yeah that's you right know? and Another thing that that I see is all these parents, you know, that it's they don't want to teach their kids anything. They want to they want the quick fix and it's hey, let's get a fifteen dollar an hour security guard in here because you know, anybody that gets paid fifteen dollars an hour is gonna want to put their life on the line for right. your kid. Right. Right. And um so I, do you wanna expound on that at all, any of that stuff or just it's pretty straightforward to me of like, hey, if you want to fund it, just take a little fraction of what we're spending on weird gender study ideology or uh, drag shows, whatever craziness is going on. And you just pay a cop overtime uh, to be able to come and just park your car outside, park your cop car outside the building and hang out. And guess what? Bad guys are going to find a different school. Yeah. It's just that simple. Now we can do locks and security windows and all that stuff, and that's all good. That's icing on the cake, but you put a, part, uh, a cop car outside with an armed cop inside, and they're going to find a different place. Yeah, I'm with you. That's it. I'm with it's you. It's that simple. I'm with you. But, um, well, hey, everybody gets a gift before the show actually starts. There you go. Awesome. So we take... I don't know how many of these you listen to, maybe you haven't listened to any, but we take mental health extremely seriously here. And um, I wanna get into some mental health stuff with you, especially with your transition back into civilian life, but part of keeping it sharp, uh, part of keeping your mental health, health, part of keeping your mental health up is keeping your brain sharp and giving it the proper fuel. And so put some stuff in there for you from Laird Superfoods. Awesome, I open now? Open it up. All right, I'm looking for one thing particular. Well, those are the gummy bears. I know that's the only reason you came. It is. But, it is. And yeah. now that I've got them, 
Uh, thanks for having me on, man. I'm gonna I'm gonna punch out now. <laughs> You're out. This has been this has been real, and it's been a ride. <laughs> thanks, man. But that is this is all stuff to promote brain health. So okay. that's performance mushrooms. Functional mushrooms have a lot of benefits for your brain. Basically, it regenerates your brain. You can dump that into. There's some uh, functional mushroom coffee in there. And some functional mushroom with adaptogen creamer. Yeah. So if you like the sweet stuff, you want to put the creamer in there. But super good for your brain. Clean ingredients. The performance mushrooms, all the ingredients are from the U.S. We try to source all the ingredients from the U.S., but main focus is the best and cleanest ingredients. And so awesome. that's what's in there. Cool, man. But Cool. Cool, man. All right, enough of the gifts. Let's move on. Let's get into it. How tacky is it to eat my gummy bears while you talk? Hit them up. There's only been one other person that's done that. Who was it? It was uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. Yeah. And uh, right after his first one, I told him the, that the, uh, I said, don't worry, you'll feel that kick in in about 30 minutes. And I think he about puked. <laughs> he thought they were cannabis gummies, but it's just candy. Got it. You know, so, but, well, John, the way I want to structure the interview is let's dive into, we're going to go through childhood, military career, business career, and then we'll get into uh, some current event stuff and some stuff that we think is some of the biggest issues that are going on in the country today and, and, and address them and hopefully come up with some solutions on how to solve that stuff. Hmm. But, um, so... Where did you grow up? I grew up in Georgia, kind of the suburbs of Atlanta. So neighborhoods, we had a lot of woods around us. So I had a real happy childhood being able to just disappear into the woods for the entire day. You come in for a tick check, you know, at the end. I hope you don't hit a poison ivy bush. You make forts and, you know, swimming in the lake. And so kind of wild and free. Brothers uh, and sisters? Two sisters, uh, we had some neighbors as well, and we are kind of sequestered out in our own little private neighborhood. Uh, and so, um, yeah, but a, a lot of alone time, a lot of playing with neighborhood kids, but really in the woods doing stuff. Close with your parents? Uh, kind of hit and miss, but yeah, pr pretty much. I've, like, I've definitely got a relationship with them, and so, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, what did your dad do growing up? A businessman. And so he was a really good as a life coach. And so really preparing me for, you know, he wanted to grow you up, get you tough, get you focused, get you disciplined. And so those were the elements my dad uh, really, you know, uh, focused on. Mom, great nurturer. She's shuttling us to soccer practices and to and fro from school and just doing anything she can to, to you know, be there. What kind of stuff were you into? Sports? Anything like that? Yeah, soccer. You know, we're talking just when I'm a little guy, right? Anytime. Okay, Teenager, well, I, I got hardcore wrestling in, in high school years. But before that, it was soccer and just playing in the woods kind of stuff. Or go-karts or uh, I was... You had go-karts? Were you... Did your parents put you in racing? No, uh -uh. I just had one year I got the sweetest Christmas present ever like this uh, go-kart with big donut tires on the back. And just, that was a great gift. That's awesome. Yeah. That's one thing we want to try to get our kid into is go-kart. You can start them at age five. 
Really? I'm really excited about this. You could, but should you start yes, the Yes, yeah. absolutely. You won me over. <laughs> you won me over. <laughs> I agree then. Now we took him to we took him to a track and it was he loved it. Mm. So I can't wait till he's five. I think they put him in the racing suit and the helmet and it's pretty neat. That's cute. But um yeah. But so were you a troublemaker? A lot of guys that go into special operations were troublemakers when they were littler. Uh, so, yeah, I, I was I was into trouble, but it's kind of like a little bit more innocent, a little bit more harmless, benign. Uh, now, uh, as a teenager, I'll start getting into real trouble. Really? And so, yeah, I was a bad kid. I was, a, I was definitely a troublemaker. Uh, but I, I played a smart enough game that my parents weren't really aware of it for a, a quite a while. A bad kid. So what? Is, what is a? What were you doing? I mean, uh, you know, chasing girls, you know, drugs. Nothing too hardcore, uh, but uh, I mean, vandalism and sneaking out. Got arrested a couple times. What'd you get arrested for? Vandalism. <laughs> Stupid. What were you vandalizing? This is this is all exposed. This is all gone because uh, it, it was you know teenage years. I was pre eighteen, and I didn't get like cuffed or anything. But you know it it was there. Uh, so you know they just release you to your parents immediately, yeah. and so I was sneaking out and just ripping down stop signs and uh, breaking into like houses under construction and tearing stuff up and just being. Crazy kids wandering around, high as kites, and so stupid, stupid. Well, last night, I believe you had mentioned some type of a traumatic experience that happened maybe when you were 19. Yeah, that was a a, a pretty big pivotal point uh, for me. Uh, leading up to that, at 15, uh, I got busted, you know, just... Uh, into some stuff that my dad particularly was real hard on. Mom was too, but dad was ready to take action. And they uh, punched me out to a boarding school. And so I got sent away at 15. Oh, really? Uh, and yeah, so I was gone at 15. And I guess the idea is, well, a boarding school will fix him. What What did you, what was the, what was the issue of 15? Why did you get, what was the final straw? Uh, my dad particularly looked at all the kids around. It's like, this is the biggest bunch of losers going nowhere I've ever seen. And so he wanted something. He saw, hey, this this is a way to, to fix it. And so he kind of sent me to this boarding school. And it was a real prestigious one. And so it was really good. I, I hated it. I didn't want to be there. And I set records at that school for how much I got in trouble. I was like in-house suspension Every week. Uh, I was in trouble all the time. Uh, no kidding. Yeah, man. What were you getting in trouble for? Stupid stuff. A lot of skipping class. I just didn't want to go to class. Uh, where, do you, so, where do you do if you skip class in a boarding school? Uh, you would have in-house suspension. And so that was like, uh, they had it arranged where you would have three hours of mandatory study to haul on like uh, Friday night. And so basically you're in this kind of like cubicle uh, head down working. There's a mod in the center of the room so you can kind of see everything. So if you're looking around, you get in trouble and you just got to read or do homework. And then Saturday morning, you have another one. And then Saturday afternoon, you have another three hour stint. And then um, I think Sunday after church, which you're required to go to as well. Um, you know, so they really fill up your whole weekend with that. 
Okay. And then guess what? If you really don't want to go to suspension, you just skip that, and then you get a double suspension. And so, man, I, I, I got into some trouble. What would you do when you skip? Where do you go in a boarding school? <clears throat> well, I had a car. Oh, know? okay. And so I, I'd, I'd get in my vehicle, and I'd punch out and go do whatever. And so anyway, yeah, I was, you know, uh, yeah. So do you live at the school? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had alarms on the doors so you couldn't get out at night. You had RAs, and then you had adults that lived at the ends of the halls to kind of check in and make sure you weren't doing anything too stupid. So, uh, but even then, I've like, I was, uh, you know, I wasn't all bad. I wasn't like, you know, devil horns, horrible, you know, kid rail. I was really just after having a really good time. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't care about school. And I didn't really get along with most of the people at school. I had a small circle of friends, and we are, were all devoted to let's have the best time possible. And that, that's what we were really after. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I, was, I was a bit wild. Did that, bring, did that bring a lot of resentment towards your parents that you were in a boarding school? Uh, it was, you know, I recognized that I, I was really at fault. And I uh, think... My parents felt like they were doing the best thing they could, and so I, and and I'm close to my parents now. Of like, I love my mom and dad, and so uh, all water under the bridge. They were, you know, certainly cost them a lot to send me there, uh, and as part of my journey, I certainly didn't want to go there. Uh, I hated it. Uh, well, there were some elements I really liked, but generally speaking, I was there because I, I was forced to be. Did you have? Did you have? Uh, did you grow up with parents that had strong faith? I know you have extremely strong faith now, and uh, you're pretty open about it. And uh, did that develop later on in life, or was that from childhood? So we were kind of—my parents were on their own journey as I was growing up. So sometimes we'd go to, like, an Episcopal church, and then we'd be, like, a Methodist church, and then we'd switch and be a Baptist church, and then a non-denominational church, and then kind of back off a little bit. And so we just shuttle around and I felt like we were all of it. And so we were kind of none of it. So uh, I did have some pieces of my background that were definitely of like under the shadow of the steeple, but none of that really stuck. Uh, I played the game some, uh, but uh, that that wasn't, that wasn't important to me. And especially when I moved out at 15, I was just kind of done with all the religious stuff. I, I didn't really, I didn't really care. Um, and so uh, my parents wanted to raise me more in a faith, and I, I would catch, you know, my dad reading a Bible every once in a while, uh, mom in it more. Uh, but anyway, of um, and we'd pray before meals, you know, and uh, you know they want to hold you to those values, but none of that was really taken very seriously for me. It's kind of check the block nominal Christianity, and I punched out at fifteen for yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, what happened? What happened at nineteen? I ended up going into college. I majored in fraternity. Uh, I just went wild. That, that means I'm like I didn't have a major. I just went nuts. I'm the kid that's like drunk on a Tuesday morning. And you're like, why? I'm like, I don't know. Why I don't not? know. I don't know. So I don't remember a whole lot of that year of college. But somewhere, somewhere in that year, I'm just kind of like, I don't really want to be here. I want to do something else. And however the thought came across my brain, and for a whole bunch of reasons that seemed really important at the time, but in retrospect, it's kind of like it's hard to even name them, like patriotism or do something 
high-speed army, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I wanted to go special operations, you know, and I had pushed myself really hard in wrestling. In, in high school where I'm living it up and being, you know, after party and whatever, I'm also a wrestler, and I'm a good wrestler. I'm the school's wrestler, especially at boarding school. So I'm setting records, and I am I'm known for wrestling. I'm very good. Really? Uh, I, I was good. I was good. Um, so I knew about pushing myself, and I knew I can push myself to death. I can push myself far past where everyone will give up. I, I realized I, I had heart, uh, and I could just endure horrible misery and suck. Uh, especially my sophomore year, uh, I, was, I was weighing about 120 by the end of my sophomore year, and I wrestled 103. So I was cutting 17 pounds a week. Um, by the end of it, hurt bad. Yeah. Uh, worst I did was eight pounds in a day. And that was murder. That was awful. Uh, and the discipline and the drive it took just to cut weight, much less to go out as this just feeling crappy, emaciated wrestler and go, going out and and fighting that way for six minutes. It, it it was it was tough. It was tough. But uh, that's what I really cared about. You know, wrestling. Uh, and it was. On the back of that, you know, of I, I guess I wanted some challenge. I wanted some fight. I wanted some drive. And whereas in wrestling, I could party it up, and I had something for my masculine spirit to contend with. Uh, when I got to college, it was kind of like I was just floating. I was just adrift, having a good time, but I didn't have a mission. And, I, and so uh, special operations just kind of— I'm going to go do that. Well, how did that even come on your radar? I do not know. I do not know. You didn't grow up like infatuated with military, watching the movies, old Vietnam stuff. Mm -mm. None of that. It just nope. hit you. Just hit me. I thought I could do it, and I decided I wanted to do it, and then that, that became the mission. That became what I wanted to do. And so I dropped out of school, and I informed my parents and everyone else that I'm going to go uh, go into the military. And uh, I'm going to do something special operations-y. And then I started training myself for it. I was initially going to go uh, Navy SEAL. Really? Yeah, y'all had all the good PR. You had all the movies, all the books. And so, and I, I thought I had the hair for it, you know. And so <laughs> You do have the hair for it, John. Sh yeah, shoulda, woulda, coulda. Um, and so I started doing like cold water training of like, I, I, I was torturing myself of like just ice cold everything and hold my breath underwater and doing laps all the time and running and doing all this stuff. And in training myself for this, I grew to hate cold water so much. I'm like, is there, can I do the same stuff without all the cold water? And so I, I discovered what an army ranger was. And I'm like, oh yeah, all the seal with none of the water. <laughs> <laughs> and so I jumped tracks uh, now, the irony is, is I made it through all the Ranger stuff, made it to Ranger Battalion and went hypothermic my first week in from cold water. Really? So that's the that's the, the funny joke in it all of I didn't escape the cold water after all. But uh, when you what year is this that you're gaining interest in the military and special operations? 2000. 2000. Yeah. So right before 9-11. Right. Were you in before 9-11? I was in jump school. Or I was in airborne hold, so I was about to go in airborne school when the towers fell. Interesting. So we weren't at war. Uh, but once I got through, you know, your 
basic AIT, your uh, airborne school, uh, which was a joke, uh, and then RIP, which wasn't a joke, Ranger Indoctrination Program. Now it's called RASP, Ranger Assessment and Selection Program. By the way, the worst departure from the coolest acronym, RIP. That's a that's a cool acronym, bro. And, and Army went RASP, which is a sucky one. So I went through RIP. That was not funny. Like basic training, you know, AIT, that, that kind of stuff, that wasn't very hard for me. I mean, it was, it was challenging. It had some hard elements, but by and large, I, th- I thought a lot of it was kind of funny. I got the game and I could play it. Uh, it didn't really bother me much. And I, I was, I'd really done my, um, I'd done hard work to train. And so I'm annihilating PT tests and, you know, because my wrestling background, I, I choked out a drill sergeant when we did combatives day. I was like, that was a fun thing. And was, I'm just excelling, uh, you know, throughout uh, those things. I got through rip and stuff. Well, let's, and, let's rewind and rip a little was, bit. Rip wasn't fun at all. Uh, but yeah. let's, let's rewind just a little bit. So wh- how many years of college did you do? I did one. One year of college. Yeah, one year of college. I think I did a summer school in there. Uh, but... Um, yeah, later I'd go back after I got out of the military and complete a degree and do all that. But where I'm going is what, what is your, what did your parents think when you told them, Hey, I'm done with this, done with school. I'm going to join the military. Nobody who was close to me was really a fan of this. Uh, yeah, nobody, nobody seemed to be, uh, a big fan of this. Uh, when my parents saw that I could not be dissuaded, uh, you know, my dad would be, I think, one of the first to kind of warm up toward it. But um, I, I, I don't recall him being really on board. We did make a bet uh, that if I made it, he'd buy me a motorcycle. And so I still got that Harley Davidson. I won in a bet. Did you really? Yeah, I did. That's awesome. Yeah. So What kind of Harley? Uh, it's a Sportster 1200, and it's all custom out and chrome. So uh, anyway, it's pretty still cool ride bike, it? but... Uh, no, I don't. Uh, not much. A couple times a year just to take it out. But me and my dad, uh, later, much later, we'd do a cross-country motorcycle trip, the two of us, riding side by side in the same lanes. I think we had like 15 different states. That was pretty cool to kind of close the loop on that, but jumping way ahead. So your parents aren't for you going in the military. You get in, you go to boot camp. What was your impression? Uh, not too hard. Uh, none of that was extremely difficult. Drill sergeants are yelling at you and you're doing push-ups and you're a bunch of wide-eyed privates. And it wasn't particularly scary for me and it wasn't particularly difficult. Um, I'd moved out of the house a long time before, you know, and so, and I'd done hard things. And I thought a lot of it was very funny. Uh, which caused me to do a lot of push-ups. You know, drill sergeant gets up in your face and he's trying to intimidate you, and I just try not to smile. And then I'd smile. And after a while, you know, I got dropped for push-ups so much more than everyone else because I just couldn't help smiling. I would just, as soon as it would start, I'd just drop myself and do push-ups. <laughs> so I got really good at push-ups. Uh, but that wasn't uh, hard. What was ridiculously hard would be the big U-turn that happened in my life, that dramatic experience that you uh, you had alluded to. And this was before basic. So right as I'm transferring from civilian life to military life, you go into like this holding cell, 30th Adjutant Battalion, 30th AG. 
And there's where you're like staying in line to get your dog tags and haircuts and you're, you're getting your BDUs and duffel bags and you're getting shots and whatnot. It's, it's a pretty chill, calm time. You're just standing around waiting in line all day. That's it. Uh, there, which would be most people's easiest time in the military, was my hardest. And the reason why is I had been, I think, through just a divine um, reckoning. Uh, God would change my life in that moment. It happened around May 22nd, May 20th, May 22nd of 2001. It's one of the most important dates in my life uh, because everything that was John Lovell died and I was completely remade in a way that is inexplicable and impossible else to define the massive departure of I was one way and legit, I became completely different in the course of a couple days. And what happened was, is I had this dramatic conversion to Christian faith. It felt awful. It felt like I was being unmade. It felt like my heart was being broken and destroyed. Uh, And then through that, uh, Jesus uh, would, I felt like, not in this, you know, divine kind of voice, but I just knew in my knower that Jesus uh, had called me to give him my life. And it wasn't as much a question of would I, it was more of a directive, you, you will, and I did. And so he crushed me and remade me. And somewhere through all that, I could, I was converted to Christianity. It felt like death and birth at the same time. And I realized how kind of mystical and unsatisfying that would that would sound for a lot of folks. But I don't really understand what happened to me. I wasn't in church. I wasn't talking to a pastor. I wasn't reading a Bible. I wasn't, you know, I didn't feel like this big void in my life. There, there certainly was one. I wasn't after God at all. Uh, and he, it's like he found me on the road and accosted me. That's what it felt like. Can you be a little more descriptive? Um, what, what, what were you doing at the exact moment where you, when you got that first feeling? Uh, it was kind of a, a, a picture, a, a water pot or a, a, a kettle warming up. And then it comes to a head of like that water's warming, 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 warming. And that's a, that's happening over the course of a few days. And I didn't let anyone know what was going on with me. Uh, but what it felt like is if you've ever had your heart broken, it felt like my heart was being broken. And then if you've ever had a tragedy befall you, something awful that just destroyed your heart, felt like that too. The problem is, is I had no tragedy and I had no heartbreak. But those were the feelings. Through it all, uh, what was happening is I was receiving a miraculous conversion to Christianity where God was uh, giving me a new heart. This is the only way I can describe it. And so once given that new heart, I was deeply sorry for all the horrible things I'd done throughout my life. You know, through just, I was repenting. I was confessing sin. Uh, I, I had offended God. I had, I had not lived to him. And so... Um, you know, through that, he remade me and I was converted to begin not only resist, you know, not resisting Jesus anymore, but, but I've, I love Jesus, you know, and that, that made every difference. And so I was truly converted. I became a different man and I don't know how else to describe it. Today's show is brought to you by helixsleep.com. 
Sleep, especially as you get older, is so critical, especially that deep, comforting sleep. Go to helixsleep.com and take the sleep quiz. I took it, and I was matched to the Midnight Lux. I've always struggled to get a full night's sleep. After years of operating overseas, some days my back is just absolutely shot. But not anymore. I've had Helix Sleep Mattress for over a year now, and it leaves me feeling refreshed and ready for the day every day. Plus, their enhanced cooling features keep me cool all night long. Helix knows that everyone's unique, so they have several different mattress models to match based on your body type and sleep preferences. Once you match, your mattress comes right to your door, shipped for free. Helix has a 10-year warranty and even has financing options for flexible payment plans. So a great night's sleep is never far away. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com SRS and use the code HELIXPARTNER20. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. How many of you have logged into your Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, whatever your streaming platform is, only to find the same mind-numbing content over and over and over again? And then you wind up settling and you just watch that mind-numbing content. Maybe it's time to spend your time learning something that's inspiring and that could possibly improve your life. That's why I'm so excited that Hillsdale College is offering more than 40 free online courses in the most important and enduring subjects. You can learn about the works of C.S. Lewis, the stories in the book of Genesis, the meaning of the U.S. Constitution, the rise and fall of the Roman Republic, or history of the ancient Christian church. With Hillsdale College's online courses, they are all available for free. That's right, it's free. I personally recommend you sign up for American citizenship in its decline with Victor Davis Hanson. In this eight-lecture course, Dr. Hansen explores the history of citizenship in the West and the threats it faces today. Threats like the erosion of the middle class, the disappearance of our borders, the growth of an unaccountable deep state, and the rise of globalist organizations. The course is self-paced so that you can start whenever and wherever you want. Start your free course, American Citizenship and Its Decline, with Victor Davis Hansen today. Go right now to hillsdale.edu slash SRS to start. It's free and it's easy to get started. That's hillsdale.edu slash SRS to start. Hillsdale.edu slash SRS. Can you maybe describe when you realized, at what point did you realize what was happening? So uh, I remember I was making, I was going to call like, Someone on the phone, maybe it was my girlfriend or maybe it was my family, but I found myself, I couldn't even call them because I felt like uh, inside was so tumultuous, I would have just broke down and cried. And I remember not making that call and I just broke. And I remember praying and I don't remember what was in that prayer, uh, but I had realized that I had just become a Christian. I, I was already loaded with enough kind of ga- gospel facts from my upbringing. I'm like, Jesus loves you, and you've sinned, and you should confess your sin. And all the things, the gospel facts. You're a sinner separated from God. Jesus, who is God, became a man, paid a penalty for you so that you should receive salvation and forgiveness of sins so that you might— And so I knew the gospel fact. I just didn't care. <laughs> it just didn't stick. I hadn't been converted. I knew some facts, but I hadn't been converted. And then I got converted in his time. 
How did that feel? Uh, it was the worst and best moment of my life. Felt like death, felt like birth. Have you stuck with it the entire, throughout the, the duration up until now? Yes. In your life? Yeah. Very interesting. So, so I've been, no, not, not perfect. I mean, I, I suck. The, the more I try to be like Jesus, the more I realize I'm nothing like him. And so it, it's, it's a horrible process of just being like, man, oh, oh I, I still suck. <laughs> so, so like, but no, I, I've, I've loved Jesus and followed him ever since. It was a permanent change. It was a permanent stick. Now that didn't mean I didn't run, you know, you know, lapse in and do stupid stuff and, you know, then have to repent again. But the difference is I was actually sorry this time. I actually wanted to please Jesus. Not because I had to, because I wanted to. That was a new heart. That was a different change. And I was just, I was a different man. And so now today, it's impossible to understand my life without understanding that piece. Some people are like, I'm not religious and, you know, the sky God and your myth, whatever, blah, blah. I get it. I get, but you can't possibly understand the departure from who I was to who I became without that. Because literally all of my success, all victories, all of it uh, happened uh, as a result of that pivotal change that didn't come from me. It wasn't me. Wow. Very, very interesting. So this happened at the very beginning of your army career. Yeah. And then basic wasn't very hard. And, you know, at this point, I'm like, I remember standing up uh, after the first night of getting yelled at. And I could tell everybody was taking this bad. This wasn't bad for me. And I stood up. I'm like, hey, guys, anybody want to pray afterwards? I'll be in the center. And so I started leading prayer groups. And I'm like, I didn't know jack about Bible. Not really. And people had like these questions about Christianity versus other religions. versus, And I didn't know how to defend that either. And so um, anyway, I just kind of jumped in. Uh, you know, both feet. And I'm like, I guess I'm doing the Christian thing now. And I didn't really know much. So I grabbed a Bible from a local chapel and I'm just like, all right, let me figure this out. And I started at Genesis 1 and I read all the way through to Revelation 22. I just read the whole Bible in fast. And when I was done, I flipped it over and I did it again and then again and again and again. And that's where I learned Bible is through military, uh, you know, trainings and overseas and Afghanistan and Iraq. I'm like, I'm, I'm just... I'm just reading it. You know how we are. We're kicked off in these small elements. You don't have access to a chaplain most of the time when you're rolling in special operations units. It's too small. You know, like every once in a while, you, you go back to some fob to uh, refit and then you see your chaplain, you know, like, and that's cool, but they can't be where all these little yeah. groups kicked out. And so it was really just me and my Bible uh, for a lot of times. But man, the Lord's grace was great because I grew in leaps and bounds. I'll bet. Um, moving past boot camp yeah. or basic, where do you go from there? Do you go to airborne or do you go to yeah. rep? You do airborne to figure out that, you know, you just you just kind of fall out of a plane. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, you're trying to uh, steer a D10, Charlie, which you can't do. You realize, oh, the slip, which, you know, it's not really doing jacks. And then you just learn how to do a controlled disastrous fall. Um, airborne school was a bit of a joke. Rip wasn't a joke. That was hard. That was awful. Were you nervous going into it? Yeah, because you knew that you, it's kind of like brace for impact. And, you know, if like you, you hold, at, you know, out of my basic training class of 
I don't know, 70 dudes. Every one of them was going ranger because it was an infantry basic training. Everyone's going ranger and everyone's all pumped up and they're standing up after lights out and they're singing the ranger creed or saying the ranger creed. And so everyone's super motivated. And you're seeing these guys that you're in basic with go through and the crowd keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And I think, uh, you know, that had been whittled down through RIP to be a smaller group. I think out of, you know, all the basics of the guys I knew, I think seven went to second bat with me. And after a year, um, I think I was the only one standing from my company. Uh, I think that's right. Um, that was in my, Bravo, you know, uh, in second bat or Bravo company. Yeah, so. Let's walk through that entire process. So you show up to RIP. How, how many total are there? I don't know. Hundred, two hundred? Yeah, a couple, couple hundred, I bet. Couple hundred? I bet. What's the what's the drop? You're the first ranger we've had on. Oh, well, all right. So cool. you're breaking the mold here. Yeah, and so the hardest part isn't getting it isn't uh getting to Ranger Battalion, it's staying there. You know, that every day is an audition for your own job to see if you get to keep it. Uh you gotta be good at everything. Uh, when I became a team leader, that was my opening brief when I had new privates. I'm like, all right, guys, it's very simple. I need you to be excellent at everything. That's the job. You know, if you're hot wiring cars, you need to be excellent at that. If you're doing PT, excellent at it. Whatever guns or land nav or radio, I need you to be excellent at everywhere, everything, or you'll be fired. <laughs> That's the job. So anything less than perfection, you're done. You say that, obviously, you can't. That's not attainable. Mm -hmm. That's not realistic, but you shoot for the goal and you land it. You're, you become good or great at just about everything that you can be. And uh, so uh, RIP was... What's the attrition rate? I don't know. I just don't know. Ranger school, which would come later, uh, that's more known, you know, of like, I think we started with a few hundred and then that boiled down to, I think like 60 or so out okay. of a few hundred. And so that uh, Ranger school was less, but, you know, it's... So it, there's two... Let's just keep, let's just try to keep it in chronological order. Sure. So you show up to RIP, correct? Yeah. Let's just walk us through day one. What are oh, you seeing? So what RIP is, is it, it wants to see what you're made of. And so whereas you're doing some stuff of some land navigation and you're doing road marches and obstacle courses, and now we're going to learn knots. And so they have an excuse of what you're doing as if they're teaching you, but really they're just trying to mentally jack you up and make you quit. They're trying to uh, find out whether you're worth investing in. So really, it's just a haze fest where they're playing physical and mental games. You know, all the the silly games to just jack with people's minds and crush their bodies to see who's going to be standing. And so uh, RIP was just that. It was just four weeks of uh, mental, physical torture. Uh, nothing is super intense as something like Hell Week but maybe something a little bit more general of like buds. And I don't know buds, but you know, it, it's, it's like, it's hard, but it's not like crazy hard. Um, Are you learning anything or is it yeah, strictly a, an assessment? You're learning stuff, but I think in the back of our, like we're doing combatives and, and stuff. And so you are learning stuff that there's the excuse of we're learning this stuff, but really what's under the excuses is, is we're here to thin the herd. We're here so that we don't send Ranger Battalion a bunch of dudes that are going to wash out in two months. That's what it is. Like, let's let's 
get rid of the chaff so that we can just have the wheat left. That's what RIP is. Could you walk us through the entire process of RIP from day one to graduation? Probably not. Why not? It's just too far in the past. Okay. I don't remember it. Is it uh, broken into phases? Uh, probably, but now it's even rasp, so I don't even know what they're doing now. I don't even know the length of time. But for me, when it was in, it was four weeks. And, you know, um, I mean, road marches, obstacle courses, you're going to do some shooting, you're going to do some land nav. And so you're always doing stuff, learning stuff. But how you're going about it is you got to screw everything up, push-ups right here. And like everything, little random PT suck sessions were inserted everywhere and so there's the excuse, we're giving you training, but really it's just a haze fest. What did you find the most challenging in RIP? Uh, probably the mental games. Uh, this always worked the wor you know best on me and means the worst, is when uh, everyone was punished because of something you did or didn't or failed to do. Uh, that's where I kind of... I had a couple breakdown points in ranger school. Actually, one breakdown point in ranger school, and it's where I was failing my ranger buddy. I I did not, I could not handle that well. Whereas you torture me, I'm I'm good with it. Mm -hmm. But I let that dude down. Uh, I don't really remember doing that necessarily in rip, but that that right there is the hardest thing that I had ever struggle with. My buddy was counting on me, and I failed him. You know, and I've done that. I failed someone in training before. And, Man, that sucks. That sucks. So yeah. uh, with Rip, I just tried to gray man out as best I could, keep my head down, and uh, make it through. And sorry, just to backtrack one more time, where were you when 9-11 happened? You were in jump school, you said? Airborne hold. So I was about to go in jump school, and then Rip would come after that. And so I think because the war was kicking off, we got a specially potent Rip class because you're about to deploy to war, they don't have a lot of time to fiddle with you. Mm -hmm. So it, it was that I remember it being particularly brutal. And I think there, uh, the um, you know ranger instructor, the rip instructors, their adrenaline's up because hey, packing for war, you boys better be ready. Let's give you a test. So my assumption is is that they were really uh, pretty serious. How did that affect your mindset when you saw those towers go down? Did you know? I'm 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 going to do exactly what I came here to do. Yeah, I didn't really think I was going to do the war thing. I thought I was going to live out the army commercial. Then I saw the towers fall, and then it got real. Uh, but it kind of hit me in phases of like at first it's just surreal, and then you work out the effects, and you're all talking it out like you have any idea. Uh, but uh, after a couple weeks, you knew you were going to war, and so it made what you were learning all the more important. I wasn't doing it because this is what we do. I'm like, I need to know this stuff. Uh, things got real. Uh, I wasn't training just to pass. I was training because I wanted to be trained. I wanted to be lethal. I wanted to be hard to kill. Would, would Did the fact, not the fact that the towers fell, but the, the fact that you knew you were, you knew you were going to war. I mean, did that excite you? Did that give you any fulfillment? the patriotism, any of that? I mean, you were young. Um, I mean, I, I was deeply angered by the almost 3,000 civilians that were murdered. Mm -hmm. I was very, very upset with that. And so there's part of me of like, let's go stack some bodies and let's 
let's make sure they're so busy playing defense, they never think about offense again against us. And so there was that. Uh, and so whether you wrap that up into, all right, patriotism or whatever, I didn't have a bloodlust. I didn't want to go kill people. My team leader, when I got in, uh, he picked me out a line of uh, uh, privates, you know, wide-eyed privates. We got to Ranger Battalion. We're standing in a line, and he's first down there, and he's looking at all our records and kind of the paperwork that accompanies you. And he selected me out of the line as like he thought I was going to be the one, you know, and so he he picked me and I went up to him, but he ended up being a, quite a sadist, you know, of like he had a bloodlust. He really, really just, he really wanted to kill people, you know, and I thought it was kind of like, all right, that's the macho game and whatnot. And I, I knew enough about the military or I was able to be discerning enough to perspective wise back out of the the pain and the suffering. And I just saw it as one big kind of, all right, this is the game. This is what's happening, you know? Uh, and so I was able to kind of to, to do that a bit. But um, when I looked at him, I'm like, okay, all right, you're playing the macho guy card. You're, you're, trying, you're the hardcore. You just want to, okay, right, right on. And over time, I'm like, no, I, I think he's, you know, wax is pretty heavy on the psychopath scale. I think he just wanted to kill people. Um, and so that was my team leader. Now, he found out quickly I was a Christian uh reasoned from there that I would be a conscientious objector and where he wanted to raise a psychopathic, cold-blooded killer attack dog, sick him. He realized that wasn't going to be me, had buyer's remorse, and then tried for the next year to make my life uh, a living hell, you know. And especially, he wanted to undermine my faith. And so while I am collapsing in pools of my own sweat, he's nonchalantly, casually walking circles around me, poking holes in my worldview. <laughs> so that was, that was my first year in Ranger Battalion. Now, once you're in Ranger Battalion and you prove that, hey, I'm not going anywhere. I can be counted on. I can follow orders. I am no fool. I am tough. I am strong. I am worth investing in. If you prove yourself over a year in Ranger Battalion or so, they'll say, all right, we'll send you to Ranger School. Uh, Ranger School is a 60-ish day suck fest where you learn a lot about leadership and embracing the suck, intestinal fortitude, uh, that kind of stuff. So it's just misery and leadership. And they teach a bunch of old, outdated Vietnam tactics, which do have some merit if you're, you know, in jungles and stuff like that. And uh, But uh, anyway, you make it through that. If you don't make it through that, you're fired. Uh, and so... I made it through, just straight through, did well, went back, and that's where you can start really developing rank. That's where you're kind of fully welcome in as a brother. Now, you you don't just wear the scroll. The scroll is the unit patch, uh, and that's what makes you a ranger. Then you get the tab, and that's kind of like now you're a fully initiated brother. Okay. You know, and so it, it, it's it's kind of like you, you go from Padawan to master. Uh, so you could have a tab. You've been to ranger school and not a scroll, you're not, you're ranger qualified, but you're not a ranger. You're not an army ranger. It's the unit that makes you a ranger. That's where, that's what the deadly dude is. It, that, that's the, you are, that is your job. You are among rangers doing rangery things. You didn't just attend a school and got a tab. Uh, so, um, anyway, the kind of full initiated ranger is ranger scroll unit, ranger tab. I proved myself, uh, for leadership. And then you can, you know, you come back as a tab spec four, that's a specialist or a corporal. Uh, and so you occupy 
uh, a more respected position in a fire team. And if you do really well there, you're going to become a fire team leader. Uh, and that'll be a sergeant, and I'd make it through that. And then if you do real well as a team leader, you become a squad leader. And that's what end up, I'd tap out at squad leader. Okay. Uh, and, and then I'd, I'd punch out to go on and do other stuff. What was, so getting back to Ranger Battalion, what is, what's a, I can't say a typical day, because I'm sure you guys are on the road doing different things all the time, but how is the, <clears throat> how is the training broken up within Ranger Battalion? Do you guys have a cycle like, like for example, when I was in in the SEAL teams, it was pro dev was your school time that was about six months. Then you have your workup that's six months. That's working with your platoon, going to all the different, um, you know, dives, a diving block, a CQB block, a land land warfare block, a maritime block, a yep. jump block. And then you go to, um, I can't even remember what they call it, but that's where you work with your counterparts that you're going to deploy with. Maybe you're going to do some training operations with a Ranger Battalion or some, I was an East Coast SEAL, so maybe you're working with some of the West Coast teams, yeah. ODAs, whatever. How is how is sustainment training in Ranger Battalion? How is it broken up? What's the cycle? My first day at Ranger Battalion, they packed me for war. So Really? Uh, yeah, that very, step one, packed for war because we were gone. Uh, immediately, I, I don't remember how long it was, but a month or two or three, and then we were we we punched out and went over across the pond. So so hold on. So I, you show up to Ranger Battalion, and they're like, "Get ready in thirty days. We're going to Afghanistan." I don't know what the timeline was. It could have been one month. It could have been three months. I don't remember when we punched out, but I know day one, pack for war, uh, and that's you know you always have kind of like they're rotating the range battalions across. So right now, second bat's over, for instance. Uh, first bat's in the hole and third's on deck. And so third is now in kind of like a, a reposture, refit. They're going to go ahead and take leave and go see family and take a little vacation and and knock out these items. We're going to make sure their teeth are fixed and their medical, and they're going to do some training opportunities that you can't do when you're on deck because – at any moment, you may be wheels up in 48 hours or 72 hours of like, hey, we're going. You know, there's one time we went to war of like, uh, we didn't know and we're just on alert. And any day you could have gone and we lived that way for, you know, a month or three. And then all of a sudden it was the day and you can't tell anyone. You remember how it was. Mm -hmm. You can't tell anyone you're leaving. You just disappear. Uh, and so you had to be ready. Uh, so I don't know what Ranger Battalion was like before war because all I did was war with a ranger battalion. Uh, but much like the teams, we had areas of uh, focus. So I'm like, all right, we're going to do uh, a rotary wing uh, operation. We're going to go down to you know Texas and do such and such. And it's going to be the CQB hit with moving an urban terrain around. And then we're going to move at, you know, after that, uh, the dust is settled on that. We're going to go learn explosive breaching and we get bring in this person uh, to do that, and uh, now we're doing range workup, and now we're going to travel and do some medical stuff, and then we're going to do some vehicle stuff, and then uh, you're just always being cross-trained so that you can be this renaissance man of lethality. You know? Okay. So, uh, much the same that you guys are doing. Of like, you got the fundamentals and basics. You're always shooting, and you're always working on movement and communication, all that jazz, and then you're, you know, kind of using these con skills, these push outs where you're 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 getting specialized training in areas of focus. So 
How is the how is the team broken up, or the entire battalion? Sure. How, how is it broken up? So battalion is separated into like Alpha, Bravo, Charlie Company, and then you'll have a headquarters, or a, you know, in that headquarters you may have like a recce element or your snipers and, and stuff. Uh, you know, so it's kind of that's the junk drawer of Rangers, but an Alpha, Bravo, and Charlie Companies, and so and then within that you're going to have. Uh, platoons, a first, second, and third platoon, and then you have like a headquarters platoon um, or a weapons platoon, fourth. Uh, and then um, of that, uh, a platoon, which is 30-ish, 40-ish dudes, depending on how heavy. Right now, recruitment's so low, that may be like eight dudes. You know? no. <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, 30, 40 dudes, you know, guns attached or mortars or snipers, you know, you, you're kind of flexing here and there and just based on Numbers, we got down real lean, you know, after we're around year of 2005, they used special operations so much in the war. We all just got burnt out and people just started ETSing or mm -hmm. punched out of like, this is too much. Just constantly going back and forth and just wore you out. And it's not like we're guarding gates. We're hunting bad guys. We may run two or three different missions in a night. You know, I remember uh, in Afghanistan, on one particular deployment, I slept in a different geographical location in that country every single night for a month. Because wow. we're just traveling at the speed of human SIGA, and we're punching around just wherever, hey, somebody made a phone call up here. We think we're, you know, it's the jack of clubs, and we're going to go up and try to find that dude. And so, for example, and so we're just traveling at the speed of intelligence all over the place and just wear you out after a while. And so... Uh, we'd got down to a real lean, and then other times you get uh, pretty fat. But uh, oh, and What's, then uh, a platoon's broken up into uh, four squads: first, second, third, and a weapons squad. Okay. Uh, and then a squad is broken up into teams, and that's you know three or four dudes. Okay. So. How so? When you guys deploy, when second bat deploys, do you all deploy together as one? Or are different, is Alpha, Bravo, Charlie going to different locations, different countries? The typical plan is, is a battalion would uh, uh, deploy all together. Okay. That did not always happen. Okay. But that that's the general idea. Okay. What about, how is the team kind of broken up into, is it different expertises? Like, do you have breachers, snipers, communications guys or is everybody does everybody do everybody's job the general idea is is to have as much uh cross training as humanly possible so we're not going to be nearly as uh specified as something like a group guy you know where they'll get real into the weeds but you'll do certain con skills and so uh jason here is going to be like our master breacher and he's been to the schools and we're all pretty good at breaching of like i love blowing doors and so i had this leg bag i always carried leg bags are are dorky but when it's filled with a bunch of deck cord it's pretty cool so i had the leg bag whenever we were running around uh clearing cities because i'm like yeah let's blow some doors open and so i kicked open a lot of doors i blew open a lot of doors but um you know and so all of us knew how to blow open doors of course but when there was something spicy of like, we want a, we want a shape charge, you know, hey, we got a safe. And Jason's like, I got it. You know, he's <laughs> the guy who's going to be able to do that. Uh, in the absence of a medic, one of us is going to be pretty darn schooled up. I, I, I took the medical con school. So I went and got my EMT certificate. 
uh, you know, and I went through EMT school so that I was pretty good at the medical stuff. I liked doing the medical stuff. Now, that wasn't my job. I just, I, I dorked out on that. And so we were all generally cross-trained, but in all the necessary areas, you wanted your, within your squad, somebody who really rocked at that. Okay. You know, you need somebody who is not just good at land nav. They're a savant. All of us can land nav. Anybody can, most of us, especially a tab spec four or a sergeant, you can pick up and do good land nav. But you got Blaine, who is, he's the dude. You want him on point. He's going to rock it. You know, and so we, we have some specificity within, but everyone's pretty cross-trained. What... um so what's the kind of the culture for a new guy showing up? I mean, it's not, you kind of went through it a little bit. You definitely got Terrible. hazed. What what happens? I mean, when do you start to get accepted and people quit messing with you? You know, and, and it's like, hey, John's going to be here. John's solid. Lay off him. Like he's part of us now. When at what point? What does it take to prove yourself within Ranger Battalion? Everything's become so sissified in culture and in the military. I have no idea of Not anything. Not now, yeah, back no, then. But back then, man, you you show up and they, uh, your life is going to be real bad because they don't care that you've been through RIP or whatever. They'll look down on the stuff of like, no, no, you, you know nothing and now you start. Now mm-hmm. it starts. So it's like, oh, well, he's been to RIP, so he must be good. Nope, they're going to see for themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and you want to know whether, hey, is this guy really got my six? Can I really count on this dude? Is this a quitter? Does his, what's his character like? What's his attitude like? Do I want to be around this guy? And so all elements of the person come together. It's not just how good of a shooter you are of like, do you fit within this culture? Mm-hmm. Can I count on you? Are you tough? Are you an idiot? You know, like, what am I dealing with here? And so everything is uh, a test, you know, and, yeah, uh, and it's going to be real painful. Mental, physical games until you prove yourself. Now, once you get back from ranger school and you got a tab, now it's a completely different culture shift. Now it's kind of like you're you're not getting dropped for push-ups, you know, unless you did something really jacked up. And if you if you did something really jacked up, you're you're gonna be given the respect of you'll be pulled into a room, typically if you got good leadership, and you'll be privately reprimanded. Privates will be publicly reprimanded and shamed and anything depends on the leadership. I, I led differently than those who led me initially. I didn't okay. I didn't I was on an entirely different leadership journey where I kept some stuff and then incorporated my own leadership strategies as well, which I, I found better uh, in some ways. So, yeah. You know, you came in at, we came into the military at basically the same time period. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there was, I don't know a lot of the history of the Rangers, but we came in, well, me and you came in in 2001 timeframe, you know, pre 9-11, there was a long stretch minus a f- or, or maybe just with a few things where where men could have gotten combat yeah. experience. Right. For Rangers, I know Somalia uh, was a big one, obviously. And, you know, I guess maybe a little bit, maybe in Desert Storm. Yeah. Um, but there wasn't, there wasn't a lot. There was a long time period from Vietnam to... 9-11, 2001, when it was really peacetime. Right. So 
So I'm, I was uh, a little hesitant to ask you, you know, what was the turning point? Because you you kind of mentioned you had been rushed. It was almost a rush to get you out the door to war. Yeah. So what was that? Did that create any kind of animosity from a guy, let's say a guy that's been in Ranger Bat for 15 years and it was all training and peacetime? And now you have John Lovell, who joins in 2001 and is going to war his first year at Ranger Bat. You know, did that create a lot of animosity within the community? Because you have junior Rangers who now have more experience and had seen more, done it for real, than guys that have been in 10, 15, 20 years. I don't know, because I wouldn't have been fraternizing with those dudes who were fuller up. Now, guys who are like, all right, you got your squad and your low man on totem pole and you got your spec fours and you got your team leaders and you got squad leader, platoon sergeant. There, it, it, I, I don't think at that level, at the platoon level, you're going to have a lot of that because they need you to be awesome. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, and so we were ready to gear up to be a dangerous, well-oiled, functioning machine. Uh-huh. And, you know, I, I don't think they were looking down on that bolt with condemnation, knowing you need that bolt to stay in place for that engine to run well. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I didn't get that sense, but I was in such dire straits of just scary war. I am undertrained. Uh, I am trying to, you know, uh, stay alive. There's lots of uh, kind of hazing amidst this. There's the, the power curve is so immense. The uh, sociological you know, grudges that high ranks would have toward me, I would be oblivious of. Interesting. Well, hey, let's let's take a break. Hmm. And then when we come back, we'll pick up with your first deployment, what that brief was like, what you felt. Sounds good. Cool. Next on The Sean Ryan Show. I was kicking open some palace doors. Kick, kick, kick. And then the door flings open. And immediately coming through the fatal funnel, the doorway, we took incoming fire, screaming right past me. I was a saw gunner at the time. I came up and I shot him in the face and just dropped him. I'd never killed someone that close. My first mission, real mission, was in Haiti. Mm. And uh, we didn't really see much. At the time, it's it was, it was the biggest deal that I had ever encountered. Yeah. How did you kind of mentally prepare? The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market. Rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen. 